This is Takeaway Only, a podcast about the hospitality industry in crisis. I'm Howie Kahn, and these are the stories of the people who take care of you. Today's guest is Leah Penniman from Soulfire Farm in upstate New York. The farm's mission is to end racism and injustice in the food system. Hear how Leah is doing that work and what we can all do to follow her lead. We're back Monday with an all-new guest. Please hit subscribe so you don't miss it. Stay tuned now for Leah. Leah, hi. Hi, thanks so much for having me. Thank you so much for being here. So in our short uh, pre-interview, we were just talking about this idea of all these things that the farm stands for, Black land, Black lives, abolishing systemic racism, dealing with food apartheid, racial justice, youth empowerment, state-targeted youth, police killings, reparations, protest. It's all the national story right now. Everything that's been part of your vision is now the news. Yeah, it's, it is a really, really powerful time. You know, I was reflecting with my family that, you know, pretty much at the end of every season, I want to quit and go work for the post office uh, because it's not an easy life, you know, to try to stand up to the beast, to stand up to capitalism, uh, to choose a rural life where we're etching out our own energy and food from this mountainside and feeding our community. It is not the easy path. Um, and people who work for the post office are probably shaking their heads right now saying their life isn't easy either. But you know, if there, if there was ever any doubt between pandemic and uprising, it's really been a race. I think that I am, and also by extension our team, we just get up every morning. Like this work is so important and we need to keep on keeping on. And uh, it's been powerful because you know, just in the past several weeks in this time of uprising, our email and call volume has gone from 100 a day to 1,000 a day. And it's people all asking the same question, you know, what can we do? And our answer is the same thing we've been telling you to do for 10, 20, 50 years. And we'll put it in a nice cute list for you, but we need to give the land back. We need, you know, rights for essential workers. We need uh, an end to state violence that targets people of color. We need reparations. You know, it's the same things that we've been talking about that are essential for this fundamental shift for us to make a just and fair and and beautiful, beloved community that we all desire. It's nice that you have the message all lined up. You don't have to scramble to put together the words. I mean, first of all, you have this amazing book, Farming While Black, that came out a couple of years ago. And if everyone just ordered that book, I think we'd be on our way to doing the work. (laughs) Thank you. That's really kind of you. I heard it's on back order. So um, we do we do have a few copies here that we could send out. But yeah, there is an entire chapter in Farming While Black called White People Uprooting Racism that's dedicated to how to both the internal reflection as well as the, you know, external actions that are needed in terms of policy and return of resources to people who've been impacted by generational violence. I want to talk about, you know, the moment of protest, but I also want to talk about the pandemic as as a precursor. What did being at the farm and working on the farm mean during a pandemic? How did that change things? Well, as you know, you know, farmers are essential workers. So in many ways, life continued on. We need to, you know, combat the voles, plant the seedlings, deliver the food to people's doorsteps who need it at no cost, which is is essential to our work here. But I think farmers were really hard hit because not only were we excluded initially from the PPP and other uh, provisions and aid, but also uh, labor was disrupted because of 
the ways that uh, black and brown folks movement across borders was really interrupted by the pandemic. Um, markets were interrupted. You know, if you happen to be selling to a restaurant or a school, forget about it. A lot of farmers markets were closed. So you saw farmers trying to pivot online, trying to switch to CSA. And we mobilized really quickly with a lot of our comrades, including the Heal Food Alliance, uh, uh, the Northeast Farmers of Color, to create a two times a week Skillshare, where we brought experts on to help our community of black and brown farmers figure out how do we respond? How do we keep people safe? How do we clean our produce? You know, so that was uh, just a huge point of focus early on in, in the pandemic. And then I think for us at Soul Fire Farm in particular, the people in our community who already are targeted by state violence, impacted by poverty and food apartheid, were just feeling an exacerbation of these conditions. So we ramped up our food production in order to be able to deliver more boxes to folks. And we also ramped up our home gardens where we bring the lumber soil seeds uh, as well as coaching to people who, you know, need a garden, need to grow their own food, especially folks who are immunocompromised and couldn't get out or people with children. Um, and so that program has been, you know, increased fivefold from what it usually is just because of this huge demand for people wanting to grow their own food. What area do you serve geographically in terms of those programs? So we are in Mohican Territory, Rensselaer County, New York, which is about three and a half hours north of New York City and half an hour outside of Albany. Uh, so as far as food delivery and garden delivery, that's where we're focused. Uh, but we are a training farm and we attract folks from about 40 states across the country and several countries internationally um, who come when it's not pandemic to learn how to farm during our 50 hour residential courses. And uh, while we're sad, um, in many ways that we aren't able to gather people on the farm in person this year, it in some ways is a blessing because the local need for food and gardens and other supports has increased. And so we just pivot, which I know is an overused word, but pivot and our, our emphasis towards our local community right now. And now in this moment of protest where people are calling you, uh, you know, to ask about your leadership and the things you're teaching and the way you've been helping youth, what's most important for you to convey from your position? Well, you know, my daughter, Nishima, um, who's 17 years old, she said, the food system is everything that it takes to get sunshine on your pl onto your plate. And I think that when we think about systems, they're really complex, you know, whether it's education, housing, criminal injustice. And so there isn't a quick fix to this. You know, it took hundreds of years to create this system of white supremacy, uh, systemic racism, state terror. It took you know, it took centuries and it's going to take us many generations to undo. And there are many points of entry. So rather than trying to figure out what is the best, most important thing, I think we need to slow down and complexify um, and really look at systems change. So depending on your point of influence, your action will be different. You know, if you're a voter, you definitely should be fighting for HR 40, which is to study reparations. You should be fighting for the Fairness for Farm Workers Act. You should be fighting to defund the police, right? All of these things. If you are, you know, someone who's on the inside of the criminal injustice system, you have different leverage points. You can be pushing judges and prosecutors to consider diversion programs and even developing those programs. You know, I know some people on the inside who are doing that really, really hard work. Um, and so when people look at our what you can do statement, it can be overwhelming because there's over 100 different things that need to be done. But all of them are important and they all are a puzzle that fits together to create, you know, this world that we want to see. Yeah, I think, you know, many new activists have been born in the last 
30 days or so. And I think a lot <laughs> I of hope people so. <laughs> are. I think it's true. I mean, I, I think it, it's evident everywhere. And I think the trick is going to be making it sustainable for people. And I think part of that's going to be pick something, figure out a way to do it well and keep doing it. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And, and we see in a similar way, this influx of donations to black and brown led organizations right now. Um, and to encourage people not to burn out on that because this is the long game. We're saying, you know, get $5 a month instead of 60 or $100 because what we really need is to sustain this energy beyond what I fear for some people feels like a fad or bandwagon where it was COVID for a minute and now it's race and then, you know, next week it's going to be the rainforest. And I think that uh, <laughs> while all of those things are important, uh, systemic racism is the underpinning of this society and we are not going to have a fair and healthy world until we address it head on. And I am heartened by uh, the number of folks who seem to have, you know, awoken in this moment and suddenly care about racial justice. I think the term systemic racism is actually new to a lot of people. Um, you do an amazing job of, of breaking down in your book how it impacts the food system. It's, it's, it's really early. I'm going to read it to you. I'm going to read what you wrote, and then we're going to talk about it because I, I want these exact words, you know, recorded. Okay, so, thank you. <laughs> yeah, you, you write, this is on page five in a, in a chapter called Black Land Matters. This book came out a couple years ago. So Black Land Matters is the first chapter of the book. You write... Racism is built into the DNA of the U.S. food system, beginning with the genocidal land theft from indigenous people, continuing with the kidnapping of our ancestors from the shores of West Africa for forced agricultural labor, morphing into convict leasing, expanding to the migrant guest worker program, and maturing into its current state where farm management is among the whitest professions, farm labor is predominantly brown and exploited, and people of color disproportionately live in a food apartheid, live in food apartheid neighborhoods and suffer from from diet-related illness, this system is built on stolen land and stolen labor and needs a redesign. Mm-hmm. That's you. Ashe. That mm. is. That is the truth. That's and I you. think it's so important to, to look at systemic racism because a lot of us are taught the myth that ending racism is about being nice to people. That somehow, you know, racism is this disease that a few people caught that makes them real mean and nasty. And if we could all just hold hands and kumbaya, it would solve it. And while I don't have anything against being nice, you know, the fundamental issue is that white folks in this country disproportionately hold power and wealth. And that's not because of merit. Um, It's not because of the so-called bootstrap theory. It's because a whole history of boosts for white people and blocks for people of color in terms of accessing that power and wealth. Even just taking land alone, you know, 98% of the arable land, meaning the agricultural land in this country is white owned, which is higher than ever. And this land was originally stolen from indigenous people, right? But then it was stolen again, because even when black folks, despite the broken promise of 40 acres and a mule, managed to amass 16 million acres of land, that was slowly chipped away, right? First by the white caps and the Ku Klux Klan, who didn't want to see black folks getting uppity and having their own farm. So they burned down their houses, lynched them and stole their properties. Um, And there's many documented examples of you know, over 4,000 incidences of this. And then, you know, after that, we have the federal government, the U.S. Department of Agriculture, denying loans and other types of assistance to black farmers, leading to their foreclosure, uh, whereas white farmers are getting all this assistance. And then most recently, we have uh, this sort of combined debacle of air property, H-E-I-R, where if you don't 
uh, leave behind a will, your property is very, very vulnerable to developers snatching it up by just convincing one heir to sell out. And then Medicaid seizing people's property um, because Medicaid apparently is a, a loan and not a grant. Um, so black farmers just, you know, really getting the short end of the stick and not to mention many other um, uh, folks of color. But it's just one example of how systemic racism plays out. And if you don't know that history, you just look and say, oh, black people must not be interested in farming because they're not too many of them. Right. And the percentage of total farmers in America who are black, it's about 1% of the total farming population? Yeah, it's just over 1%. Um, and that number in itself is to problematize it a little bit is the way the USDA classifies a farmer as someone in management, which is why I say that farming is the whitest profession. But if you look at who actually does the labor on farms, it's the brownest profession. About 85% of the labor that's done is done by um, people of color, specifically Latinx, Hispanic, Spanish-speaking people, as well as uh, black men who are being leased, their bodies are being leased to the plantation from prisons. And this continues to this day. Um, so how, how does being a black farmer differ from what you thought being a black farmer would be? Oh, <laughs> it's hard to think about because I'm, I mean, I've been a farmer since I was 16 years old. I just turned 40. So Happy I'm not birthday. sure that before. Thank you. I'm not sure that before 16. Um, I had a vision of what it would be, but I definitely went through a, a crisis point in my late teens, early twenties, where, you know, I looked around at all of these farming conferences and saw white experts and white authors and not a lot of folks who looked like me and thought that maybe I was being a traitor to my people and that my strong hands and intelligent mind would be, you know, of better use and something more relevant to my folks, like working on housing discrimination or education reform. And luckily I met Karen Washington of Rise and Root Farm, and uh, she's a black farmer, elder of mine. And, you know, she just, she said, don't give up. You know, our ancestral heritage and relationship to land is actually not just about slavery. It's about thousands of years of dignified, noble contribution to sustainable ag. And one day we're going to have our own conference. We're going to have our own book. I didn't know I would write it, but, you know, she was like, hang on, daughter. Uh, this is really for us. And I'm glad that I listened um, to her because it has been an incredibly hard career, but it also incredibly rewarding. And I feel like I and we are part of this returning generation of Black folks whose grandparents were dispossessed and who are now finding our way to belonging on land and to our rightful place in the food system. After I read that passage to you from your book, you said Ashe, which is Yoruba. I'm wondering if you can explain what it means and what it means to you. Sure. So Ashe is a Yoruba word. It has a number of meanings. Um, it refers to the spiritual force that permutates the, or permeates the universe. Um, it also is used colloquially to mean amen or so be it or I agree, which in that case I was saying, yes, Ashe, I agree. Um, but that word has a, a deeper meaning to me as well, because in addition to being a farmer, I'm a member of clergy in the West African indigenous religion of Bodun, and also an initiated devotee in the Yoruba religion. And so I do a lot of study and practice uh, and that informs the way I interact with land and plants and community from this place of you know, West African cosmology and traditionalism. How does your spiritual practice enhance your social justice work? It's inseparable, really. I mean, so as a spiritual activist, my belief is that we as human beings have this divine duty to pick up the broken shards of the world and put them back together, that there's this 
Um, That's a tikkun olam thing too, right? It's a tikkun olam, absolutely. I didn't know if you'd catch that. <laughs> um, but additionally, I think that we get a lot of reinforcement from our spirituality. So, you know, for example, if I'm about to head out into a rally and I'm unsure what I'm going to encounter, you know, which which happened just a couple of weeks ago at that 11,000 uh, member rally in, in Troy, I'm going to take my medicines with me. So I bring, you know, my pouch that has herbal waters and powders that I've made and prayers. And I do perimeters to protect all of us and prayers to ask my ancestors to have my back. And, and we're okay. You know, we make it okay out of, out of those situations. And I, you know, it's just one of myriad examples, but it becomes woven into our everyday, the way that we lean on the Orisha, the earth, our ancestors for support and protection. I'm just, I'm really interested in how those things go together and how matters of faith can inform matters of, of justice. I think we're living in a time where so many people are separated so greatly from both things, and there's so much of a divide to overcome in terms of developing both. Absolutely. And, you know, and it's something that's been interesting to watch develop at Soulfire Firm because when we first started our farmer training, it was the things you would expect out of a farmer training, you know, cation exchange capacity, soil amendments, cover crop selection, crop rotation. And we still do those things because I was a science major. I'm a super nerd and I, I love it. But, you know, we were keeping our spirituality quite separate. And folks were like, you know, peering around the corner trying to be like, what y'all doing over there with that? those medicines? What are you pouring on the ground? What are you singing? And we started to bit by bit welcome people into that world. You know, so for example, before a harvest, we're going to place an offering on the ground and ask permission to, to take that plant. Um, after we kill chickens, because we do process our own meat, there's a special spiritual bath that we do and a ceremony that we do that's around laying down the implements of war um, and, and being prepared for peace. Uh, you know, in the springtime, we have a planting ritual, we have a yam festival in the fall. And so those things were our side project, our personal family projects, but almost universally, when people come through our farmer training, they want to know about that. They want, they don't want the mundane and the spiritual to be separated. And they want to be informed by um, this reclamation of, of West African indigenous tradition um, and integrate that into their lives. So that's been super cool as I never imagined that I could have a job where all of me could show up and be welcome. <laughs> so uh, this is it. This is, here we are. You got to, as my, a friend of mine says, you got to make your own table, you know, and that's, that's the only way you can have that kind of existence. I want to talk about your youth food justice program. Can you talk, tell me about how that developed and also how it works? Definitely. Um, with the caveat that both because of pandemic and some priority shifts, it, that's n not happening this year. But when we first started out, um, the only program that the farm had was the doorstep delivery of fresh food at low and no cost to people living under food apartheid. And pretty soon after we were doing those deliveries, we heard from the parents who were receiving the food that their young folks were having rough summers. You know, it was, they were being harassed by the police. There were no programs for them getting into trouble and asked if we could do something for these young people. So we started our youth program, which is, you know, pretty modest. It's, often takes the form of a field trip where youth through an existing program are coming out for a day or two. Uh, but we also do have week-long camps. And uh, we call them LOL, Liberation on Land. And so young folks are coming to the land, you know, learning how to farm, picking flowers for their moms, having amazing dance parties, uh, learning about social justice and leadership. 
And one uh, particular outgrowth of that program, which uh, was just so close to my heart, was Project Growth. And that was a diversion program. So it was actually started by a mom who worked for the DA's office, was seeing just how messed it up it was with youth prosecution. She wanted to create an alternative and asked if we would pilot it. And so essentially we uh, we got some new legislation passed in Albany County that allowed a, a judge to not sentence a young person to probation or juvie and instead have them do a leadership training. And then we developed this leadership training. So we we kept 15 kids, you know, out of jail, which was really, really amazing. Um, they were very small groups, worked with five youth at a time. And the county eventually shut it down just because of bureaucracy and politics, not because it wasn't working. Uh, but it did provide a template for a number of other counties across the nation um, to do similar things. And so we've heard some cool stories from Jersey and California about, you know, programs that where they got the idea from Project Growth and then were able to create these alternative pathways for young people. I love the part in your book when you talk about, you know, reaching the sort of toughest cases to crack, you know, you I'm going to quote you again, because I, I like your <laughs> writing so much. You write, the grandmothers in the ancestor realm whispered their love for us, the most hardened and defended child who earlier asked, what's the point began to weep. His grandmothers reached for him through the earth under his feet and reminded him that there was a point. It's cool. I mean, I, you know, I, I want to see all these kids grow up to be okay and for the police to stop killing them. Um, do you ever have cops on the farm? Do cops care about farming? Could it help? <laughs> um, that sounds terrifying. So I, we actually <laughs> try to, you know, out here, we're in such a small town, we don't even have a police department, so it's the state police. Um, mm -hmm. And we've been really lucky that we've been able to make enough good relationships with neighbors, you know, across race and politics, that the few times the cops have shown interest and wanted to come into the property, they've been interrupted by neighbors. They're like, don't worry about it. It's fine back there. You know, it's just a fundraiser. It's just this or that, which has been really, really helpful. Um, yikes. I know, but can you yeah, imagine a world? I don't know world? if that's our work. I don't I know. know if that's our work. I know. Um. I, mean, I just, I, I've, <laughs> I've, I've never had this thought before, but like, just imagine if cops had to develop any sort of tenderness if it was part of their job at all yeah that would be something i will say while we didn't have police out here we did do something really interesting so project growth which was this diversion program you know there was a bunch of suits you know adults of involved um lawyers and probation officers and stuff who were keeping an eye on the program and they wanted to come observe the young people and we just felt weird about it it's like you know you have these people roll up with white folks, professionals with clipboards, watching these young black men, you know, in the fields, it just didn't, it, it didn't smell good. And so, but they, they required this visit. And so what we ended up doing is asking the, um, the adults to come in muck boots and raincoats, and they would be students for the day. And then the young people in our program would teach them how to farm. And that's how they would best understand is how we pitch it that's how you will best understand what's really happening here and how effective it is um, and they agreed and that was very powerful because we, here we have these young people you know telling these grown-ups to bend over and space the turnips at two inches and on and on and it worked out that's good um you guys have an online store starting for the first time this summer yeah we will it's going to be postponed a bit because of uh covid and the increased need for food in our community. 
some of the growing area that we were dedicating to these value add products for our online store, we shifted into fruits and vegetables for immediate use. So it'll probably be late summer, August or so, uh, but there will be teas, uh, herbal blends, sauces, culinary salts, things like that um, that are shippable. Uh, we've had folks asking for many, many years to be able to take home a little bit of Soul Fire Farms magic. And so you'll have that opportunity and all those proceeds will go to support the free food delivery for people who need it in our community. How many people do you feed in your community? Uh, depending on the year, we have between 25 and 120 households signed up um, and they get a weekly box from June until November. How is that this, uh, this year? Is there more? Yeah, well, this year we are doing both families as well as institutional shares. Um, so for example, the West Hill Refugee Center, uh, which obviously works with refugees and new Americans, um, we're working with the Center for Law and Justice, um, who works with people coming home from incarceration and their families, and the Victory Bus Project, which actually brings food inside. Um, and so they're getting, you know, large boxes equivalent to many, many families' shares. And then we have 23 individual families that are getting food. So it's about the same amount of food, but it's more institutional as opposed to just the families. When did you make the decision to do that? And, and why is it important? Well, you know, with our small growing area, there's, there's a much higher demand for the free food than we can possibly provide. And so we had a good look at our mission at the end of last year to just decide you know, what communities are top priority and communities impacted by incarceration and uh, draconian immigration law uh, rose to the top. And so that is why we deepened our partnerships with those particular institutions. It's not that anyone else doesn't deserve food, but, you know, before we were doing a sliding scale um, CSA where we had a number of middle and high income people from more affluent communities who were getting food and then that income was subsidizing the lower um, income shares. And while that's a beautiful model, and I, I still think it makes sense in a lot of places, we decided to put 100% of our food towards uh, low income families. And so we're in the middle of a, a, a transition in terms of how we structure that. What do you feel most ambitious about right now? <laughs> I feel really ambitious about rematriation of land and reparations of wealth. I mean, these were both dirty words, you know, if, or, or just at worst, nobody even knew what they meant. It seems like a few years ago. And now it's part of common parlance, a national conversation, this idea that we need to give land back and we need to give wealth back to the people from whom it was stolen. And I'm inspired by this younger generation because I think that I've seen a number of folks who've inherited resource and are recognizing that that resource really doesn't rightfully belong to them and are working actively to figure out how to give it back, um, how to spend it down, how to be accountable. You know, folks who are part of resource generation is one example, um, or Kindle Project is another example. And um, that really inspires me because I think it's going to be a long time until we get legislation that mandates the return of wealth and land. And in the meantime, if we can just get busy, shuffling that around ourselves that, you know, that impacts people's lives tomorrow. So I'm, I feel ambitious about reparations. Where do you draw energy from every day? How do you get up every day and, and do the whole thing, the activism piece, the education piece, the actual work of, of running a farm, which is incredibly laborious? 
It's true. I'm tired, Howie. It's true. Um, but here's the thing. The sun gets up and it wakes me up and then we go. Right? So I think that aside being a little bit addicted to work, which I am committed to addressing at some point in my life, um, you know, this is meaningful. Nobody can say that growing food and providing it to people who are hungry doesn't make sense. Like nobody can say that working on access to land for people who haven't had land for generations through no fault of their own doesn't make sense. Or, you know, taking care of our young people and making sure that they have a future. Like all of these things are undeniably good. And I think that for me, having work that is aligned with my highest values and with my destiny is what gets me up. Maybe the answer is self-evident, but I want to ask the question anyways. What, what are the best things the restaurant industry can do to support Black farmers? The restaurant industry? Well, I would say first, before we even get to Black farmers, I mean, the restaurant industry is really replete with a lot of uh, systemic racism. You look at the front of house, back of house situation. Um, you look at the fact that we still haven't addressed um, food workers not having the same minimum wage and very low tipped wage, not sick days, paid sick days, all of that, unions. And so I think working internally on the structure of restaurants and um, the ROC, Restaurant Opportunity Center, has really great policy platforms for folks who are unfamiliar. Um, And I think that learning journey alone is going to open folks' eyes to, you know, what they can do. As far as supporting Black farmers, obviously, to the extent possible, sourcing uh, from Black farmers and also being willing to support the aggregation of product because of this whole history of systemic racism and violence. A lot of black farmers have you know, less access to land, processors, middlemen. And so sometimes it takes a little more work on the consumer end to try to aggregate those pieces in order to get the amount of product they need. Um, so being willing to roll up your sleeves a little bit and get involved beyond what a typical buyer might do. Do restaurants approach you to buy from your farm? They do. And I'm so excited that they do. Um, As mentioned, you know, we have a commitment that 100% of our food goes to uh, households living under food apartheid. And so we don't currently, uh, you know, provide product for restaurants. And we have the privilege to do that because our farm has a nonprofit branch. And so we're taking in, you know, income from our program fees and fundraising in order to give away that free food. But I think that, you know, a farmer who is not operating in that model is going to need to take restaurant wholesale accounts. And we certainly train folks on how to prepare for that type of work when they graduate from our program. On uh, on the level of, of pure deliciousness, what are you growing right now that looks so good and you're so excited about? Oh my goodness. This year it's popping. I will tell you, it went from winter to summer. And so a lot of things are ripe that shouldn't be ripe. I think they got shocked. I'm excited about strawberries and so are the birds. So I need to put some netting over them. I'm really excited about anise hyssop, which is this herb that tastes like sweet licorice. And I was just weeding it and that's so delicious. Um, And broccolini, if y'all haven't had it, it's like this tender, sweet, like little broccoli stem. That's really good raw in salads. And that's ripe too. So, I mean, I like everything. Uh, you know, I, one of the things I, I learned in the book is is you kind of, you know, commune with the earth and you kind of ask for permission for certain things and, you know, look for signs like when you were digging your your pond, you know, you didn't do it for like 10 years because the earth was telling you no, right? This year is is such a year of, of upheaval and pandemic and protest and violence and awakening. What's the earth telling you this year? What message are you getting from this planet? 
I love that question. And so, uh, you know, without digressing too much, in the Yoruba religion, there is a system of divination where we use physical tools, you know, a priest uses physical tools, cast them, a pattern emerges, and that pattern corresponds to uh, literature. So there are 256 books in the sacred texts, and each book has hundreds of poems that give messages. So there was both a reading done for the world around pandemic, and there was also a reading done for the world um, just marking the new year, the Yoruba new year. And a theme in both of those was ecological humility, that the only way that we as a species are going to survive through pandemic and through all our future challenges that will invariably arise is to cease seeing ourselves as having dominion over creation and instead accept our rightful place as the younger siblings of creation. The rocks, the waterfalls, the trees, the birds, the amphibians, those are our older siblings. They were here first and they have wisdom to teach us and we need to sit down like a younger child would and listen to them and see ourselves as part of the web instead of you know, master of the web. Um, so that is what the earth is saying to me and to us. I'm listening. Um, our show is called Takeaway Only. I'm wondering what your big takeaway is from leading Soulfire Farm through, you know, the last several months of fire. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my big takeaway is that there's hope. Is that even after many, many years of pretending like I believe we would win, I actually now can say from the deepest place in my soul that I believe that we will win. There is hope. Leah Penniman, Soulfire Farm, thank you so much for being here. I appreciate your work. I appreciate you. Thank you, too. That was Leah Penniman. You can follow Leah on Instagram at Leah Penniman, and you can follow Soulfire Farm at Soulfire Farm. Thank you so much for listening. Takeaway Only is produced by Casey Kahn, Rob Corso, and me, Howie Kahn, for Freetime Media. Our logo is by Reynald Philippe at Beepoles. Music by John Palmer. Special thanks to Kristen Millar, Antoine Ricardou, Raphael Weil, and to the whole team at Welcome. Check out their important community-building work at welcomeconference.org. We're back Monday. This is Takeaway Only.